0: Being a CEO felt like the opportunity to really influence almost from your own perspective, if that made sense, like really being able to have no alternative but to make a difference.
1: Welcome back. Welcome back. And today do I have an amazing guest for you. I've got Ndidi O'Casey. She's the CEO of UK Youth. That journey to her becoming a CEO is one that is so interesting she's been a teacher she's been an assistant head she's won loads of different awards she's worked at places like Pearson all linked to teaching but she absolutely hated teaching the thought of it drove her from becoming a clinical psychologist so how does she go from hating something running away from it and yet shining in it we'll get into that We talk about even her stepping into becoming a CEO, which happened at the start of the pandemic. She had spent months reading loads of books, listening to podcasts, doing her research, had a 60, 90, 120 day plan all laid out. She thought everything was perfect. And then the pandemic hits and you have to react and throw every single thing out the window as a CEO. How does she handle that? We talk about an OB, which she has and how she was going to turn it down because she didn't want it. But what made her change her mind and why is it so important we talk about imposter syndrome going for roles she didn't think she was going to have the importance of purpose of faith being emotionally drained at the lowest of her low and how some words from her coach made an absolute difference to her it's an episode you do not want to miss so i'm going to stop talking so we can get into it and learn more about indeedy ukasey Welcome to Everyday Leadership. So today I have the absolute pleasure in this windy day that we're, we're holding down to have a conversation with someone whose accolades are, are just wow. That's that's just how I'm going to start, you know, She's currently the CEO of UK Youth, shall I say. But prior to that, she worked in schools, in in the schools in London for about 10 years or so. And then she worked as an executive director at Teach First. And she worked at Pearson's. And she's also got an MOB, which I was like, we're going to, we're definitely going to talk about that OB, some stuff around that. But she's also an ambassador for Teach Rich Nigeria. She sits on the board of Mulberry Schools Trust, National Citizens of Youth Homeless Charity and Centerpoint. As well as then, you still see on Sky as well, from what I understand as well. So, and you have a podcast <laughs> where you're a co-host. So I'm like, I'm about accolades and being busy <laughs> and holding everything down as a CEO. Like, indeedy or KZ, it's an absolute pleasure to have this conversation with you today.
0: Oh, thanks for having me. It's really excited to be talking to you as well.
1: I was thinking about you and I was thinking about your journey and what you do right now. I wanted to go way back to... A young you. What did you want to be when you were younger?
0: So, I mean, I grew up in a very, I would say, typical Nigerian home. <laughs> so, although I grew up here, I grew up in London. I was born in Nigeria, but I came here as a baby and I, I you know, I grew up here. My mum, you might as well have transported our village to, you know, London, Southeast London. She was very focused on. Really, I only ever heard about four careers. This is probably sounds familiar to lots of listeners, hopefully, but you know, lawyer, doctor, accountant, like all well, the only careers that my mum understood. So from very early on, it was like, you will go to university, you will be a profession, and these are the professions you will be. But one of the things that really stood out for me is I was always drawn to young people. And so, you know, I grew up in the church. My Christian faith is kind of central to who I am. But when I was in children's church, I would go to the creche. volunteer like I just loved being around kids and young people and I just remember that as part of my very earliest memories and so even like work experience at school everything I'd always try and find a way to do something around young people and so I vacillated through careers I was going to be a lawyer but then I was going to be a family lawyer I was going to be a doctor but I was going to be a pediatrician like whatever it was I'd find the angle that was young people and so I think that was really the only common thing. Everything changed, one year it'd be this, one year it'd be that. But I don't think I really found myself till
1: I started working, really. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. You had that commonality going the way through, but then when you went to university, you started off doing computer science.
0: I wanted to do English, but my mum could not <laughs> wrap her head around what do you mean reading books that's not going to uni so um it was honestly um it may sound really silly to people you know I was 18 years old like how are you still being told but you know that's the kind of home I grew up in and so yeah
1: exactly if if you're from the culture you get it
0: I would give it a year. And it was actually only because of my eldest sister that she intervened. And that was the agreement. She has to give it a year. So I gave it a year, hated every minute of it. And then I was able to change. But the one thing my mum was adamant about, you know, English is obviously a BA. So she then hooked on it has to be a BSE. So she almost, it sounds so silly, but I promise you this is my life. <laughs> and so she was, she said, it can be anything else. Cause she just, she, Bachelor of Science. Like that was something she held on to. So I was able to do psychology because psychology was a BSc. So I, it was what I wanted to do, but it was like, it ticked her box as well. She had no idea what the degree was, but as far as she was concerned, she gets to say, I have a BSc, And so that's how I transferred after a year into psychology. Okay.
1: And and that allows you to step into that people side of things and exploring that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I loved it. And you wanted to be a clinical psychologist.
0: Yeah. That was so funny. Honestly, life only makes sense looking (laughs) backwards. It's so funny. But uh, again, I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. I wanted to work with young people. I was adamant. This was it. I was going to be a clinical psychologist. And at the time, to qualify to be a clinical psychologist as part of your training, you had to do two years teaching. And I couldn't imagine anything worse. It was such a turn-off that I completely changed my mind about being a clinical psychologist. And it was because of the requirement to do teaching. Only, you know, obviously for for the next steps to kind of come. But it's fascinating to me that, you know, where would life have been if I'd gone down that route? But the thing that turned me away from it ended up being, you know, the very thing that would (laughs) even shape
1: the rest of my life, really. What was it about teaching? I know you had some bad experiences, but what were those experiences that you had that was like, no, you were adamant you weren't going to go down that road at that point in time?
0: Not to sound like a broken record, but I think part of it was my mum. Like, again, like teachers and teaching is not really a (laughs) thing that is respected in my culture. It's conditioning... particularly, you know, in, in Nigeria, like back, particularly back then, but I'm not sure it's changed that much. So I just, I probably couldn't even face the conversation, but I think for me as well, everything I'd imagined about teachers, I just remembered my teachers and I just, it's so funny. You don't really see them as human beings. You don't remember them as full people. So I just, all I could think of was, what well, I just didn't understand what the profession was. And it was just nothing that had ever ironically considering how much I was drawn to young people the idea of teaching them in a school context was never something I kind of naturally gravitated to and again I think it says a lot about the perception of teaching particularly back then but yeah I just I can't even quite pinpoint exactly what it was but you've got to know I wanted to be a clinical psychologist so for me to change my mind because of that it just you know whatever that block was, it was significant,
1: so how did that journey then carry on from that door shut into clinical psychologist to what you led into next?
0: I mean that probably would have been quite probably midway through my um, degree or early, but you know finished my degree, it was a placement degree, so ended up you know it was five years at university with the with a year of computer science, and then again, really randomly, I got a job in publishing when I finished. I my other real big interest is media and tech and technology, pl- media platforms, all of those things. And so, I, I remember I I loved English, I loved reading, so I the idea of working for magazines seemed incredible to me. Oh my God, the people who write magazines, and it was a city job, and so I worked for the national magazine company. This was Cosmopolitan company. Like I really thought this is it. I get to go into the city for work. Like I've made it. And I hated every (laughs) minute of it. (laughs) I was flabbergasted by why anyone was interested in this job. And it was interesting to me because the people around me really loved the job. But i didn't, so I knew it was about me, not anything else, and it was actually then that I realized being fulfilled in work was really a thing, like it was an important requirement for me and it again, it sounds quite melodramatic, but I remember feeling quite clear that it had to matter that I got up in the morning it there had to be it had to be more than just because I want to it had to it had to make a difference me leaving the house. And I remember that being so strong because I didn't understand why me being in, in that office and, you know, the sales and writing it just didn't feel like it mattered that it was me. It could be anyone. It could just you know, fill in a seat as it were. And I remember being, you know, I stayed there for 18 months. I remember being so frustrated just by the fact that I wasn't enjoying my job and everybody else was. And I remember sitting there and I remember Googling I remember just key words that were really, in, that I was interested in. It was business, innovation, young people. <laughs> and I just like, I remember when I put that like, job or something, I have no idea where that came from, where even the instinct to do that came from. But I was scrolling through the searches and Teach First came up. Whatever made me click on it, I clicked on it. It was the first year of Teach First. It hadn't started. And it was essentially a call to action to address educational inequality. And it was framed around this idea that there are haves and have nots. And the only difference is opportunity and access and exposure. And I don't know how to explain to you. It's like someone punched me in the gut. It resonated with me so much because it was everything I'd experienced. It was everything that it kind of made sense of my journey because I don't know about you, but I didn't discover, I feel like most of the world till I got to uni. There were so many things that I didn't realise were a thing. And just because they just weren't things that I was exposed to growing up. Like what? It sounds so silly, but I remember discovering like networking and, you know, the idea that you would, go somewhere and connect with somebody and follow up. And, you know, they would maybe help you with something or you'd help them or you'd build up this community of people that you could then draw on. I didn't realize people traveled every year. I didn't realize that there were jobs that were beyond those four that I told you about. Like I didn't realize the kind of experiences that people had. I didn't know anything about you know, work shadowing or, you know, the way finances worked or just the things that now you kind of take for granted that just form who you are. I wasn't exposed to those growing up and I didn't realize that some people were and some people weren't. I wasn't exposed to private school versus state school. I didn't know that, you know, some young people got to do some things that others didn't you know, apparently I was poor. I didn't know that, right? Like, obviously I didn't experience, you know, I I had an amazing life. I loved every minute of it, but I was lacking, I, you know, free school meals. I was all of these demographics that are attributed to me. Apparently being a single parent household was a thing. I did, you know, all these things that I didn't realize had categorized me in a particular way and had essentially put me on a particular track in my life. So when I saw this with Teach First, I knew what was going on with like kids that I'd gone to school with. And it made, it just made so much sense. And I'm telling you, I'm reading this thing and I'm like energized, inspired. My God, like I was, you know, the activist in me really, I think was born in that Google search. And I was reading all about it. It was the first cohort. They were looking for, I think like 200, you know, people to join this thing, it started in three weeks' time. It was a six-week residential, and you would then be placed in a school as <laughs> <like> a teacher. <laughs> and I, I literally, when I tell you, I almost cried. Like I was so upset because I, I was it. I was sold reading every line. Sold, 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 sold. Even going away, all of those things. Sold, sold, sold. Teacher, like, what? I don't, no, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to. But I just couldn't ignore what had been ignited and just read in just the, reading the call to action. And I promise you, this is the thinking. I said, I want to be part of this vision so much that I will put up with being a teacher for two years. I will do it for two years and I'm out. But if it means that I can play my role, in changing the environment of for young people around opportunities, access, oh my God, yes, I will sacrifice for that and I, right then and there, I applied, and three weeks later, I was in canterbury. wow that's
1: you know it's crazy because when you roll your back and you think, wait a minute, previously you wanted to be a clinical psychologist, you did not go down that route because of teaching and going into going to yeah. school. And here you are in a job and you're like, I want this so bad. There's something about me seeing this and me reading this. I made it really, really come alive for you. I'm curious, another 18 month period where you were in the city, did anyone around you know you weren't happy?
0: Oh gosh, great question. I'm not even lying. I don't even remember. Like I just, it feels apart from maybe it's just old age at this point, but like, it feels like a blur I don't remember, <laughs> I don't remember anyone I worked with. I don't remember anything about like who I worked for. I can see the environment, I can see the building, I can see outside, but I don't remember anything about it. All the the lasting imprint was the difference between how I was reacting in the work and how others were reacting. And the fact that I took away oh, something's missing for me nothing's wrong with this job nothing's wrong with these people this is not the right fit for me and that's really the main thing I remember
1: when you finally started rolling you started your, your two-year stip, what was going through your mind first day of school
0: I love this. You know, three weeks later, I was in Canterbury. It was 186 of us that were there. And we were in a six week kind of basically training camp. And when I tell you, I was so arrogant. I felt like I was the demographic that these, that Teach First existed for. So for me, it's all you lot that need to learn about, you know, inner city kids and challenging. This is my lane I'm going to coast. What? This is me. So all through, I remember just thinking that the main thing for me was the teaching, you know, by the way, I I was, I studied English. So um, full circle, I was an English teacher. So I was training in the pedagogy and the, you know, the training of teaching. And that was my real focus, but you know, Teach First was about that, but it was also about the community impact, the young people. So all of those sessions, I was, so cocky, that's the word, not even arrogant, cocky, really thought, this is, I'm going to nail this. And I remember walking into Oh, by the way, I got placed in Southeast London. Like I got placed in the school, my neighborhood. I thought this was it. I was sailing. And I just remember, I'll never forget it. I see, this is the difference. Like I, you know, I remember almost by second this experience and all through my training two years compared to you know the two years prior. But I remember walking into my first class and it was a year seven class and I walked in <laughs> and I just stood at the front and I was like, hello um I miss Ocese and they didn't stop talking. <laughs> and I was like, oh, maybe they didn't hear me. So <clears throat> hello, I'm Miss Ocasey, um call to attention. They did not pay me any mind. And I, not lying to you, I think I stood there for like five minutes, just shocked. I just didn't, I didn't understand what was happening. And for me, the big lesson was, I grew up, you just respected people because of their position. You respected them because of their, you know, authority, you respect. What is this nonsense where you have to earn respect? What is this nonsense that kids have a choice? I just didn't understand what was going on. They were, you know, kids would argue back, talk back. I was like, what? And looking behind me, do you know I, I'm the teacher? Who are you talking to? It was just such a ironic culture shock. And I think what it really was, was a generational shock. What I hadn't accounted for was how school had changed. Young people had changed, how the dynamics had changed. Now don't get it twisted. I figured things out pretty quickly and like behavior and those things are never a problem for me. But there was a moment there where I realized, oh no, 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 this isn't a given. This isn't a given. You have to assert and you have to really believe in your rights to be the one in authority and, you know, earn it to some extent. So that was the real big shift for me. The biggest surprise in all of it, I told everybody two years, I'm out. It didn't take more than a term. And when I tell you, I fell in teaching. That thing that I couldn't put my finger on, that it has to matter. I would jump out of bed in the morning, not because I loved English, not because I loved my school but I could see the faces of my pupils. I could see my kids and I knew they needed to see me. I knew that there was a smile that Peter needed. There was a pat on the back that that Johnny would need that like Ahmed needed me to check his homework. Like I knew it was important that I got up and did and showed up for them. And that fuel is so grounding And it's so powerful that it's hands down still the best job I've ever had. It's the most important job I think there is. Two years turned into 10 years and I was not, you know, not going anywhere really.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's mad that so many times I interview a lot of guests. I talk to them about what they wanted to do when they were younger. And they now give me this journey of how they spend some 10, 15 years not doing that thing. But when they eventually Mm. go back to it, the way they come alive and you describing you coming alive at school and you recognizing that need that the kids have, how that drove you to get up and go and do that. Sounds very similar to how you were describing when you were in church and you were serving and you're going to those spaces and places. And it's like, this is me, like before the world took hold of me and culture and everything else took hold of me. This is who I wanted to be. And now I'm actually doing that. And this is what happens when I show up.
0: Yeah, that's such a powerful way of of describing it. I think that's exactly it. Something very innate was tapped into. And that has been my experience of this work more broadly. Like, you know, I used to have all these debates with colleagues about, people who loved their subjects and like subject matter experts, people who are fueled. And I think that they're needed and they're important, but I didn't care. Like it wasn't, it was the vehicle for me. It was the kids. So, I mean, throughout my career, I've taught English. I've taught psychology. I've taught media studies. I've taught, uh, I had one term where I taught geography, no idea where that came from, but it was the kids. It was just about imparting knowledge and supporting young people at this pivotal junction in their life. That was the thing that really held true to me. How important was this? Like year nine is so important. Year 10 is so important. Year 11, like these are transition points for young people that are so pivotal and you get to be part of that. You get to be a voice that can be something of significance in a positive way. I mean, that there is nothing more humbling than that. And so, yeah, I think that definite. This is what I was placed on Earth to do. That really, that's how I felt.
1: And obviously, you were new green, and you had um, Dame Sally Coates was your
0: yeah. She was my second school. school. She was um, yeah. She was not my placement school. I was there. I was my placement school for three years, and then I moved to Burlington Danes, and she then came a year later, I think. So, yeah, she
1: was my head teacher at BDA. What was your, how you talk about her in the past, what were some of the lessons you actually learned from her that stuck with you?
0: Honestly, the biggest thing for me with Sally, when you think about, you know, five, ten people that shaped your life, she will be on my list because for the first four years of my teaching experience, with all of the things that I just said, I assumed, I just accepted that chaos was part of the job The schools that we worked in, the environments we worked in were were chaotic. And really, I felt, and you know, the whole mission of Teach First was to place you in these places specifically. And so I always just thought that your job was to push against the tide, you know, batten against all of the elements and try and support young people as much as possible to kind of navigate their way through this chaos. And it wasn't until Sally that I realized, oh, wait, schools don't have to be this way. She took a school that was in special measures that everyone, to be fair, just assumed that was where the school was going to be. And, you know, there were all sorts of excuses, which sound outrageous to say now, but they were true, which was where the schools are based, uh, the kind of communities, uh, the kind of kids, this is just it. This is the, the kind of teachers it can attract, the kind, all of this stuff. This is it. The school's a special measures school. And I remember the first assembly Sally Coates held. She pulled together all of the staff. And by the way, she was not the preferred person. There was an eternal candidate that everyone loved. So this was somebody coming from the outside that everyone was a bit (laughs) like, yeah, really like, who are you? And this woman held an assembly as she just said, I'm drawing a line. Today is the last day that we will expect average from our students. Turn your expectation dial up a hundred, this is going to be an outstanding school. These are outstanding young people. They deserve nothing less. We're not going to change the demographic of the young people, but we will change their outcomes. If you are not in this for this journey, thank you for your service. I'll see you later. Off you go. If you are up for that, I want to work with you. And I just had never heard a leader talk like that. First of all, like really kind of saying, you're here for this or off you go. But also she painted a vision. She painted this idea of what we could be. And I was all in. And, you know, I had the absolute honor of kind of working with her and that school went from special measures to outstanding. The prime minister cited that school as an outstanding school that he would You know, select over private schools, whatever. You know, we were where BDA is, we're surrounded by private schools. And BDA was ranking on par, if not better than them in so many ways through the transformation that she led. And really, again, that was the next building block or or the next, you know, what piece of my journey, because I then realized it's possible. And actually, with this toolkit, you can support more schools. To do this, and you could support more young people to have the opportunity to go to good schools. And that was my next draw. But I wouldn't have known that without her. And that was what she really modeled for me. I absolutely loved BDA. <laughs> you know, I was adamant. I was so many years, I was like, I've got to go, I've got to go. And every year Sally would give me like a year 10 class. Cause she always, I would never leave my class halfway through their GCSE. <laughs> she would always be like, oh, well, here you go. Another two is so funny. But there was one point, you know, she was making a transition. She was going to be an executive head and take on more schools. And so she really said, you know, are you in this or not? Cause I need to know if I've got you on my senior team or not. And it was just an opportunity for me to finally just be like, oh, come on, you want to see how far you can take this really and so I went to work for Teach First because again, the whole purpose of Teach First was to help schools turn things around and become, you know, outstanding schools. And so the opportunity to go and work with Teach First at a regional level was yeah, definitely something that I was drawn to. And that's
1: how I moved on to Teach First. Do you meant the impact you wanted to make
0: with Teach First? Oh my god, what a good question. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Oh no, I'm never going to, oh, it's such a good question. I've never been asked that before. Now, one thing you have to know about me is that like my expectations for myself are beyond what I could articulate for it to make sense. Only again, because it's a whole probably and a whole nother podcast. So I don't know how to answer that question other than probably not, but obviously yes, if that made sense. Like I, you know, my ambitions were astronomical for what I thought we could do. And I think we did a lot, but you know, we didn't do everything. So uh, yeah, you know, I'll take what we did, but that wasn't everything we could have done.
1: I'm smiling because when you made a statement like, my ambitions are astronomical and there is a, I was having this conversation so a little while ago around, Nigerians in particular, and the way that we're Mm -hmm. brought up that when we do something Mm is like, it sometimes can come across as pride or arrogance, but it's more like you've been brought up to be like you dream mm. big like it's ridiculous and whatever you do, doing there's no, always another level there's always something that you can mm. do and escalate so i completely understand what you're saying around i had big ambitious dream but in the context of things it sounds like you achieved some really really good things that made a difference
0: the challenge though for me is that the way that i think about it is i honestly have no personal ambition for myself like honestly i'm not and again, I don't know to what extent people understand this, but like, I I honestly couldn't care less about some of the accolades and, you know, you mentioned the OBE stuff, like I'm just not, that's not me. But where my ambition comes from is almost system impact and generational change. And for me, the weight of that comes from recognizing what has come before me. So I feel that the reality that I only get to exist because of what those before me have sacrificed and what they enable to happen. I am a black woman immigrant that is in now X, Y, or Z position. I didn't do that. The work of my forefathers, the work of generations before me is what enabled society to even allow me to exist in this context. So that's one thing. That's the pressure of the, I need to now do that for the next generation. I'm not dropping the baton, right? Like I need to push for change to the same extent that those before me did, right? That's my contribution I need to make. Then on top of that, almost superseding all of that is I'm a Christian. I fundamentally believe that I am called to make kingdom impact, right? Like, and Uh so- if I'm satisfied by this little win or that little win, and yet I look around me and not to get to. Come on,
1: listen, bring it, bring it, bring it, bring it, bring it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it still feels like a lottery for our children. It still feels like, depending on the community you grew up in, depending on who you're exposed to, depending on what happens, you're either going to make it or you're not. Our children are literally dying. Like dying at each other's hands. And you want me to be impressed because I did what? That's the kind of thing that gets me energised and focused about change. Like I want these situations, these community challenges, these contexts that we're living in now, I want them gone. (laughs) And my, my craziness is I fundamentally believe that we can do it. All it takes is a collective effort that enough is enough And so in a way, for me, the job is to build enough momentum around this has to change for that change to happen. So that's my goalpost. When you ask me, did I do what I want to do at Teach First? There are still schools that are failing. There are still young people who drop out of school, have nowhere to go, fall into one path over another when their equivalent sliding door story, as it were, could have been that that school could have been an environment that completely changed that for them. Even if they didn't have everything they needed in the community, even if they didn't have everything they needed at home, education is powerful. There is that the experience of going through education and having the right inputs and exposures at the right time is transformative. So if we can, at the very least, give every young person equality of that experience yeah, I'm bold enough to believe that we won't be seeing the sorts of things that we are contending with right now.
1: You can always tell when someone is purpose-driven, when they are talking and that purpose is coming out. Like, you can't be you can't hold it back. As I'm listening to you talking, I'm <laughs> like, yes, I feel that inside of me. Like, I need to get up and do something. and that's But that's powerful. Because that's what you want to see. You don't want to see someone who's just lele. You want to see someone like, no, my mission mm-hmm. is bigger than this. And I'm here to yeah. utilize every single thing I have inside of me to try and bring the vision I have in my mind to fruition in, in reality of the, lo- of the world that we live in. And there's so much change that needs to happen. It's interesting when you, want to talk about this later on, but since you mentioned it, your OBE, how did you feel about okay. it?
0: I mean, my, honestly, the first emotions were who did this and where are they? So I can wring their neck. Like I didn't understand what was going on. And I, I remember I received it by an email and I, I just remember forwarding it to my um, comms team. And I was like, who did this? What is this? And they were literally like, Don't, no idea what you're talking about. But then, oh my God. And I was like, no, no, i want to figure out what, what is this first of all. And then unfortunately I was at home as we all were. And I was reading it aloud and my mum overheard (laughs) and that I honestly think is what shifted everything because as God is my witness I was not going to accept it I just didn't not for all the reasons that it ended up you know being uh, interesting in terms of some of the reactions to it not for any empire thing per se I didn't even really go there in my mind it was just more why? Like, I didn't understand why I deserved this versus all the other people that have been doing, you know, similar work, different work. It just never something that I was like, oh, you know, and I just didn't understand where it came from. My mum, I, d- I have no idea why she even knows anything about it, but she screamed. I heard, I read it out. She screamed and she was just so excited. And I remember saying to her, please don't be excited because I'm not accepting it. When I tell you this woman started crying she phoned my sister. She was like, tell her this is for me. It's not for her. Tell her this is for me. She can't do this to me. All of the, And I was just, I couldn't understand what was going on. But when I tell you this is so important to my mum, like it is, it's meant the absolute world to her. But yeah, I just wasn't that fussed. But anyway, I accepted it. My organisation were equally saying, you know, it's about us, it's about you know the profile of youth work, it's about the organization, you can't turn it down. So I, you know, accepted it. And then one, once it became public, the reaction, this is very similar to the reaction that I got when I was appointed actually as CEO. I just couldn't understand, although of course it makes sense, but like I couldn't understand why it meant so much to so many people. Like it was, you know, people. went out of their way to write to me. Former students found me to write to me to say how impactful seeing me in this position, you know, now the OBE as well, how impactful it was to them. And I'm telling you, even if it was just for one of those things, it would have been worth it because some of the things I heard about, like, you know, seeing that somebody can makes me think I can, all of those things, that's important. And I know what it means to see something in order to believe that you can do it. So that took it to a a, a real level for me. And I was very happy to be able to play that role. But yeah, there was also a couple of people who were "Uh, empire. Why are you, you know, I'm not, why are you doing this? And again, I get myself into trouble if I go into this conversation, but because it wasn't, because I wasn't really fussed either way, I'm very comfortable that people can have their opinions I'm never going to lead with the fact that I have an OBE. I'm not, it's not something I don't have the letters on my profile. I'm not interested, but it's not for any other reason than I wouldn't lead with any other thing. Like I'm, I'm indie. That's the main thing that I want to, I want you to know about me. So yeah, it was, it was a very interesting experience just in terms of the reactions that I got.
1: So it was an interesting one and it's very polarizing sometimes, but once thing I'm, um... I've been learning, especially the last two years, around is how in, we talk about represent, representation. A lot of times we talk about celebrities and media and all those kind of avenues, but actually our world is so much more bigger than that. And actually, majority of the the public do not work in those spaces and places. They go to normal day to day jobs. So it's very, very important then for them to see people aspiring and achieving those kind of accolades and get into those kind of positions, because that's what really inspires them. That's what meets them where they're at, as opposed to this particular celebrity thing, which is way, way, way out there at the not one, as opposed to the population. I can see that. And in your role, when you became CEO, did you always want to become a CEO? No,
0: but I knew that I always wanted to work at a system level. So for me, Being a CEO felt like the opportunity to really influence almost from your own perspective, if that made sense, like really being able to have no alternative, but to make a difference. Like it was literally in your job description to be something that makes a difference. I loved what I thought the role represented and UK youth, like I had, again, I'd quite recently just moved to Pearson. I The move to Pearson was very intentional. I wanted corporate business experience, I wanted global experience. I loved the opportunity to work on digital. You know, this was something I, I wasn't going to be there forever. I knew that it was just not something that I would see myself doing long term, but, uh, you know, a good few years. And it was, you know, a year and a bit into that that I literally stumbled across the UK youth advert on Twitter. I'd never heard of UK youth before, but I read the recruitment pack and I just loved the fact that it was, you know, it wasn't one slice of young people. It felt like it was meeting young people on their terms and being able to do work that could be bespoke to that young person's need or that community's need. And just the opportunity to work in that space just felt so compelling I was not expecting to get it. Like I just, I really felt like it was the experience of applying. It definitely was my dream job. So I felt like, you know, I have to go for it, but I wasn't, I don't think I really thought I would get it. And so getting it and then everything that kind of happened, I think was, is all felt, this is year three and it still feels like a complete
1: world. Before we even delve into that, I think you just made a really, really good point. I just skipped over that. You still went for it, even though you didn't think you were gonna get it. And I think a lot of times people see roles and they're like, "I don't have that. I don't have that. I don't have that," and they stop themselves and they have this whole conversation in their head. As opposed to like, you have nothing to lose by going for it. Then, like, just go for the process. And like you said, either you gain the experience of actually going through a process like that, which you have never done before, or you ultimately get it. Like, how did you feel when you got it? <laughs>
0: I think you have to really know me to like understand this, but there's probably been no progression role that I've got that I haven't been immediately filled with absolute.
1: What the hell am I That's
0: like just an absolute. <laughs> no, no, that's a surprise, you know, a hundred percent. And my best friend is the one that gets it all immediate phone call, quite emotional. And then very much like, you know, imposter syndrome, so severe from becoming an assistant head teacher all the way through every leadership role has been a, oh my God, me? How, oh my God, I'm going to fail. And and I think it's because the weight of responsibility, I can't express to you how much it means to me that you've been given an opportunity. There are people depending on you. And now we're talking about a whole organisation depending on you? What? I, I just lost it. So it's my, my best friend that always has to, first of all, start with, love didn't you apply for this? Like, like, why are you acting like it's a surprise that this happened? But then all of the, excuse you, like, do you know who you are and all the things that you've done and always land with, you know, if God brought you here, he's going to see you through. You don't have to have all the answers, trust. Like it's a cycle we go through. And so there was definitely that as well, but I was super excited. I mean, it was an absolute dream, but I was immediately flooded with
1: do not mess this up <laughs> type thing. So that was where that started. And following through that, then you start six weeks in pandemic hits. The one of the biggest spaces that you all have, you have to close that. So that loses you what much in funding. You have to furlough mm-hmm. 65% of your staff, make 25% of them mm-hmm. redundant. It's like <laughs> you're only six weeks in telling you what were like obviously you already had those thoughts six weeks ago now you're in here and this is currently happening how did you pull yourself out of there
0: it's so much worse than that because this was also the first role that I had actually set up in the way that I'd always dreamed every other role I wanted to take time between the last role do like reading prep get ready write a plan you know the classic hundred-day plan I did that for this role like I was ready. So, when I tell you I was prepared to suddenly have that rug pulled from underneath you was really, really difficult for me. And I didn't have time to really process that because, as you say, you're just dealing with very real, immediate issues. And so, I think it was good in the sense that I think we just went into firefighting mode. Like it was really flight or, you know, fight or flight, as it were. And sink or swim all of all of that those analogies but it you know I'm not give me a good fight every day like I'm you know that that I think was great I rolled my sleeves up I, I know how to go to battle and so I think that being able to focus on that was really good and it was actually only when I think other things started like all of the racial unrest all of the things that were happening with the pandemic in terms of, you know, loss of life, like all of those things, I think contending with the the whole kind of mirror of all of these things, I think is that's when things really started feeling difficult and overwhelming. And the experience of being a CEO was very different to what I thought it was as well. And so I think all of those things together just made it super hard. And I, I think I've talked about this once other before, but like I remember really, really being emotionally, sapped and drained and just at my breaking point, honestly. And I reached out. I don't even know if I reached out to her. I think I might have just sent a text to, well, she might've just reached out randomly, but a former executive coach that I'd worked with years ago at Teach First, I don't know what it was, but she asked a particular kind of question. And so I kind of shared a little bit in my text to just say, like, I'm really struggling. And she was like immediately on the phone. You know, I could get emotional now, but like she, in the midst of all of that, she just let me talk. Like I, it felt like there was nobody I could talk to in that period. And I, I just, I've never felt so lonely in my life and she just let me talk. And then through it all, she let me talk, let me talk, let me talk. And at the end of it, she just said, Indidi, where's your faith? And when I tell you, (laughs) it's like she, it's like someone punched me in the gut because I dropped it somewhere. Like I was just, I was operating in the reality of what I was seeing and experiencing. And it had been so long, that I had regrounded myself in the very things that had carried me to this point. And when she asked that, it's like a weight lifted off of me and I'm not being melodramatic. I really don't know where I would have been without that conversation because I was as close to breaking I think as I've ever got in my life. And that was an anchor. Yeah. Had no reserves, nothing. I was sapped in every facet of my life. Everything was just drained. And she, it's like she literally pulled me out of what felt like a really dark pit. And I was able to kind of, you know, claw my way back. But it's two years or whatever that I probably haven't fully processed yet.
1: You're going to take some time to do that.
0: No, there's no way I will do that in this (laughs) (laughs) moment. Like one of the things I actually think is I almost think I have to do it in pieces because I think it was so intense that I honestly don't think I have even the bandwidth to fully process the last two years. Sadly, it might be, you know, maybe years down the line when I get the opportunity to just feel like you've got the space to just like whatever comes, comes. Let me just reflect because right now I think it probably still feels a little too raw in some areas for me to kind of go there. But the big takeaway that I definitely have processed is, oh, this experience has changed you. Like this is really imprinted in who you are. And I don't mean in the, I mean in a positive in the sense that, oh, I get what leadership is on another level. Like whatever my experiences were before this broke open another part of me and at some point ultimately that's a good thing but it's just in the experience it's obviously not (laughs) a fun time
1: you said earlier on what you thought being a ceo was and what reality was what was that difference
0: you know i'm sure everyone's read it but you know this thing about oh being a ceo is lonely oh my dear (laughs) there's I knew it. Remember I'd read books and I understood all of this. I had my (laughs) plan. But when those words are light, but yet they're so heavy because the reality of what those words mean is something else entirely. So I have never experienced being in a role where there is no peer right? Like there is nobody in your immediate sphere of influence that is like you. Your staff look to you, your senior team look to you, but are also distinct from you. Your board hold you to account, but look to you as well. There is nobody that you can be a 100% yourself with a hundred percent honest and vulnerable to because everybody engages with you from a particular lens and that's right. And that's how it should be. But that's a very, very particular road to walk. It's something that I honestly don't think I had. I don't know why, because again, there's nothing there that I haven't read, but I think it's a difference between, I always say this, this is one thing again, I process. I think it's a difference between training for a marathon and running a marathon. Now, like, it doesn't matter what you train, running a marathon, there's no training that will make the running not any less difficult. That's, and, and your body knows the difference between a training and an actual, we're done, 26 miles, we're finished. There's only so much you can prepare for it. It is just what it is, and you won't fully know it until you're in it.
1: Yeah, the practical and the theory are two different things yes and yes hundred percent there's certain things that you you have to go through because even if you read it you you hear about it the mental and emotional energy you can't assimilate that (laughs) you need to actually physically go through and and, and like you said that's why it can be very draining and even that statement around it's lonely at the top everything that you said around that is true but i also find it interesting so why do what i do now but it was your coach that created that space for you just spiritually let it all out mm-hmm. because then you had those that was someone that didn't want anything from you that was your time mm-hmm. where you can just be open mm-hmm. you can be real you can be honest with them and mm-hmm. since yeah. that experience have you created I want to say things around you to make it less long at
0: yeah I, I have and actually because of the way that my brain works the reason i was able to do that was because I wanted to support or somehow mitigate against others feeling that way. So that my I have a whole new burden now for first-time CEOs <laughs> and like on CEOs more broadly, but first time especially because again I I feel like my God, if I had that circle in place, if I had the someone you know, you could just send a WhatsApp group to whatever that sort of thing, and so. I've used action learning sets in the past. And one of the things I was able to do post that coach conversation actually was set up an action learning set for with first time CEOs, which has just proved to be an absolute land, you know, gold saving grace for me as it were. And, you know, I've done that and I've been, again, been able to revisit some of the plan where it was like, who are your mentors, get your circle, your brain trust, like all of this in place, please. I had no Bandwidth to do any of that initially, but I've been very mindful about trying to put those things in place since, and I definitely think that's you know obviously that's helped in a lot of ways. So like that,
1: would you say that some of the, even though it's completely unprocessed, but some of the pain and, and the struggles that you went through during that period has helped you in your work when you're thinking about the youth and the struggles and they've gone through, and how that's also affected their mental health and everything else as well.
0: Yeah, I think a hundred percent. I think in a lot of ways, largely because I feel really responsible for breaking down any myths that surround leadership. And, you know, I think a lot of people imagine and envisage that in order to be in a position that I'm in, I've got to have it all together and I know all the answers and it's like, oh my God, you've done this, you've done that. And one of the things I think I learned this quite early, but it's obviously been cemented in this role is everyone's just figuring it out. Like there's nobody that's walking around saying I've nailed it. I've got it. You know, everyone has their insecurities. Everybody feels like an imposter on some days. I think it's important for young people to know that because you put so much pressure on yourself to be, to have arrived, to be excellent, to be all knowing. And I think it's because you think other people are, so, you know, you, as you said before, you w- withhold from applying for things. You withhold from going into certain rooms, from going into certain forums. You withhold from using your voice in certain experiences because you somehow are under the impression that others have more value than you do. And once you realize that the person that you think has it all together, has all these experiences that are so rich in value is scared is trying to figure it out gets things wrong i think you then give yourself the freedom to be on a learning journey which is what we're all on and so i'm very very intentional about making sure young people know that that you are on a journey but guess what you have value today because your experiences today are valuable for somebody else so please use your voice speak share even in your learning you have worth I just don't think it's understood enough, sadly, until you experience more and more life. So if we can get young people to realise that early, I really think it could shift the way that they approach life, really.
1: Do you think there's anything that schools or teachers can do to help kids or youth understand that a lot more from a younger age?
0: Yeah, I think we can talk about it. I think that's like, the number one thing we can do is we can talk about it. I'm such a believer in creating spaces for conversation with no other agenda other than a space to talk. Like let's talk and addressing things and not assuming that everyone knows th- that you've got questions and that you're not sure, like saying it, making it clear that, you know, I'm, I'm very open on social media, very open in any interviews that I do. I don't have things figured out. I don't want you to look up to me and think that, I'm, you know, whatever. I make mistakes. I've had so many crash and burn moments in this particular role, but all through my life, there's a liberty that comes through that. And I think that the best we can do is have those conversations with young people so that they know that that's okay.
1: This has been um, very insightful. I thought I knew it's the research <laughs> and you just came in through and you hit me with so many different gyms. I was like, come on, like this is, and it's, I think it's really, really important as well. Listen to someone, like I said, in your position, talk and share and be real. I mean, like, this is the reality of life. No one has got it all figured out. It's not perfect. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. I'm still dealing with my own stuff. But you also know what drives you. You can hold on to that vision, that purpose, and your faith as an anchor. I mean, we were talking about before we came on around that. Like, even for me, like, my faith is very important to me as well. So I hold on to those anchors where it helps you to navigate. It's your essence of who you are and when you forget that you forget who you are and then the world now tells you who you are and then you start to watch that when you go back to that you go back to that center you go back to that what's inside of you then life starts to change and shift and you move forward and you make progress
0: yeah
1: 100% my last question would be how do you define leadership
0: Ooh. You know, honestly, I think this answer will probably change tomorrow or next week. Or, But like right now, the way that immediate thing that comes to mind for me is painting a picture of a destination that is so compelling that people want to work to get there. That for me is the first tenant of leadership and then creating an environment that enables people to get there. But I think without without that North Star, without that sense of, where we're going, that is so different to where we are now, then, you know, I'm not sure what you'll need in, but you can't just be a visionary. You have to create the environment. You have to take away the barriers. You have to hold standards that enable people to follow that journey and ultimately get to that destination.
1: I can't think about perfect ways to, to end this, like, you know, <laughs> That was, yes. And I'll be actually curious to see what changes to tomorrow. But, that's already a powerful, powerful breakdown of what leadership truly really is. And, I want to say thank you. Thank you for just, you being you and you showing up. And, being that beacon of, of light and representing to many different youth. And the work you do is absolutely amazing. When you guys are making a massive, massive difference. Which is where the recognition came from. But, really really appreciate the work and that's why i wanted to highlight the great things and highlight people like yourself as well because it's important that people know
0: oh such a pleasure thank you so much for having me it's been really it's been fun having this conversation but also i think i've you know been inspired by you and your journey and like being able to be bold enough to make life choices to kind of create the life that really fuels you and I think you're such a great example of that as well. So thank you for having
1: me. This has been fun. It's been an absolute pleasure. This is A Real Leadership and speak to you next week.